Well, how many of you know if I were to ask you or tell you or say fat guy in a little coat, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You, you get the reference, okay? It, for those of you that ha- don't understand what I'm talking about, you'd have to watch the movie Tommy Boy, and I'm not endorsing that movie or anything. It's just something that a lot of us have, ha- have seen. No, no judgment, okay? But a lot of us have seen it, and when I say fat guy in a little coat, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your mind goes to that scene where, where Tommy Boy, as the, the fat guy, Chris Farley, has a tiny coat. He's trying to get into it, and he's dancing around and he's singing fat guy in a little coat to David Spade and then he bends over and the coat rips and and tears. It's a funny scene in, in the movie. And I've heard it said that theology, Christian theology, is a lot like a fat guy in a little coat. And you might be thinking, what are you talking about? How is Christian theology like a fat guy in a little coat? Well, theology is just a big word that means what we believe about God. And what we believe about God throughout church history, theology, has been simplified into creeds. We Christians throughout church history have simplified the most important and basic Christian theology into creeds. A creed is a perfect example of a fat guy in a little coat. It gives us something that can wrap our minds around God while not completely wrapping our minds around God because that would be impossible, but it gives us the ability to kind of wrap our minds around who God is and and what he's like. It gives us handles, okay, pun intended. It gives us handles by which we can know and understand who God is. And so creeds have done that all throughout church history. One example is the Apostles' Creed. Now there's the Nicene Creed, okay? So throughout church history, people have come together and said, hey, this is what we believe, the most important basic Christian theology, and we've put these things together in things called creeds. Now we don't have time to dive into those, but that's the basis for this series, and it's a series that we're gonna come back to each summer where we're just gonna address a different, like basic Christian theology, like the most basic Christian theology that we must agree on. We must agree on. There's a lot in Christian theology that we don't have to agree on. Okay. There's lots of minors, if you will, but there are many majors in Christian theology and it's the majors that have been put into creeds. And it's these majors that we must agree on for the sake of community and fellowship and mission. We must agree on these things as God's people, as the church. And so in this series, we're going to talk about one of those major points of Christian theology. And we're going to do that each summer. We're going to come back to a different point of Christian theology that we would say we we have to agree on like these most basic and simplest forms of Christian theology. And so we've called this series Creed. And these things that we'll talk about will become creeds for us. And so in this series, Here's what we're going to be talking about this whole series over the next few weeks. It's this, is that the Bible is God's word. Now you can follow along with the message today in our app. Okay. If you download our app, search for the city church Lubbock in your app store, uh, download the app, click message notes, and you can follow along with this. Okay. So there's fill in the blanks now with our message notes to help you kind of stay with us and track with us and help you remember these things better. And you can email yourself the notes at the end. So if you want to follow along with us, fill in the note, fill in the blanks, uh, and keep those notes to take with you. They're there. Now we're going to be in a lot of places today to talk about this. Um, there's a lot of quotes, a lot of verses, lots of points as we dive into the Bible being God's word. So I would encourage you to do that. Download our app, 
uh, click message notes and follow along with us as we go. But we're going to be talking about throughout this series, why we believe this, why we believe the Bible is God's word. And so we're going to look at the authority of the Bible. Next week, we're going to talk about the history of the Bible. Where did the Bible come from? How did it come into being? Uh, it, does what we have now look like what they had then? And then in the final work week, we're going to talk about the sufficiency of the Bible that really all we need uh, for growth in our spiritual lives is the Bible. The Bible is totally sufficient uh, for our spiritual growth. And so we'll talk about that and how we know what the Bible is saying and how we can apply it to our lives. So this summer creed is going to focus on the Bible, the Bible as God's word. And that's what we believe. And we must agree on that, like to have community and fellowship and to like to move forward together, like as a church and to be on mission together, we must believe that the Bible is God's word. And so tonight we're going to be talking about the authority of the Bible. But before we get there, we have to establish something and that's the existence of God. And so I'm going to do that real quick. Okay. This is going to be kind of a summary of the existence of a God in the first place that would even speak to us in the form of his word. So we now know the universe has a beginning. We know that like there was a point in time where bang, the universe came into existence. Now creation or, or creationists, Christians would say that bang was Genesis one, when God said, let there be light. And he began to speak and things begin to come into existence. But science has told us even now, now that there is a beginning to the universe. It hasn't always existed. There was a beginning. And for that to be true, it means there was an uncaused cause at some point. There was an uncaused cause to the universe. And so we believe that that uncaused cause must be more powerful, more moral, and more able than you or I as the life that has come from that beginning and the universe itself. To be the uncaused cause of the universe and life means that you would have to be more powerful and moral and able. You would have to be a greater cause than what the result of that cause was. And so we believe in an uncaused cause and that cause to us, that uncaused cause is a all powerful creator, moral God. Now people, scholars who say they agree with this, they believe that there is an uncaused cause and that uncaused cause must be an all powerful creator God. Some scholars would say, okay, yes, that's true. We realize that we understand that that has to be true because life always comes from life. Life never comes from non-life. That even if that's true, there's no way we could possibly know that kind of God, that eternal, all powerful creator kind of God. There's no way we could possibly know that kind of God and they would be right. They would be right unless that all-powerful God who has the power to do anything and everything revealed himself to you and me. And he has. And that's the great news about our God is that God, this all-powerful creator, eternal God has revealed himself to us. And that's the great news about God. It's this, is that God is personal. That's another one of the attributes of God. Not only is he eternal and righteous and holy and those words we use to describe his morality, not only is he able, all powerful, omniscient, all knowing. Okay. He's all those things, but the Bible also teaches us that God is 
personal, that this is one of his attributes and he has chosen for us to know him. And that's the great news about this God is that he is personal and he wants you and me to know him. And so the question then becomes, well, how has he done that? How has he revealed himself to us? How has he chosen for us to get to know him? Because we don't get to decide that. If God exists, then he's the one who decides how we get to know him. And the Bible teaches us that number one, supremely, we get to know God through Jesus. That's how we get to know who God is, what he's like, what he wants. We get to know Jesus. And we talked about that in a series we did on Jesus all this past semester called Fake Jesus. That we get to know God through getting to know Jesus. And that's what it says in Hebrews 1, that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. Colossians 1 says that he's the image of the invisible God. So he is God in the flesh. So God has supremely revealed himself to us in Jesus. We get to know God by getting to know Jesus. Okay. That's what the, all of this, the scripture tells us. Okay. So that's, that's the first way we've talked about that, but in this series, we're talking about the second way that God has chosen for us to get to know him. And that is through his word. God has chosen for us to get to know him through his word. Throughout the scripture, we learn that God spoke directly to many people like audibly. He spoke to people. Secondly, God wrote on tablets of stone himself. When Moses went up on uh, Mount Sinai to meet with, with God, God wrote on tablets of stone himself and gave them to Moses. And Moses went down and said, this is God's word. God has spoken to us through his written word. And then third, God told people like Moses, prophets, other leaders to write down his words. Oftentimes when we read through the scripture, we'll see, we'll see that God directed people like in Joshua chapter one, write these things down for my people. And so God has revealed himself to us and we get to know him, what he's like and what he wants through his word. And by his word, we mean his spoken word. We mean his written word. And another word for his word would be the scripture. We often refer to the Bible as the scriptures. Okay. Now Wayne Grudem, who wrote his systematic theology, which is in use by the majority of seminaries in our country now said this famous theologian said this about the scripture, the authority of scripture, which is what we're talking about tonight. The authority of scripture means that all the words, watch this, all the words in scripture are God's words. Remember the Bible is God's word. So all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way, watch this, that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or to disobey God himself. So if you ever find yourself saying, well, I don't believe that I disagree with that in the Bible, you're actually disagreeing with God himself and you're putting yourself in the place of God. We don't get to agree or disagree with God's word. God's word is truth. And when we disagree with it and we don't believe it, we're believing a lie. It's not that we have some other form of truth. It's not that we have a, a higher truth. It's not that we have a different way. No, the Bible will teach us when you disbelieve, when you disobey God's word, you've believed a lie. You've traded the truth of God for a lie. And so this is a big statement that Wayne Grudem is making, and I believe it's true. This is a huge statement. 
So why do I believe this is true? Why do I believe that you should believe that what he said is true and that the Bible is God's word? That's what we're talking about tonight. Number one, the authority of scripture comes from itself. The authority of scripture comes from itself. What does that mean? Well, basically it just means this. The Bible says it's God's word. It claims to be the word of God. Watch this. Here's what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to one of his disciples, Timothy. He said this, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. Watch this. All scripture is, say this with me, inspired by God. Let's do this again. Okay. On the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. So the Bible teaches us what's true and it makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. So the Bible will oftentimes point out things that's wrong in your life. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Because when the Bible points out things that's wrong in your life, it's calling you towards repentance. It's calling you towards life and blessing because the Bible says that Satan is trying to steal, kill and destroy your life. He's trying to take you out. And when you don't believe or obey God's word, you're choosing a curse rather than blessing. You're choosing death rather than life. And all throughout the scripture, God is saying, choose life, choose life. Listen to my word, obey my words, choose life, do things my way, believe the truth. So it makes us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us. The Bible will correct you when you are wrong. And it teaches us to do what is wrong. Right. So here Paul is saying about the scripture that it's inspired by God. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, remember the, the Peter that, uh, that, that denied Christ and then was restored and was one of the very first preachers in the book of Acts in the early church? That, that, that Peter, here's what Peter said. One of the closest disciples to Jesus. He said this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He said, above all, Above all, Peter says, you must realize this. Above all, realize this. No prophecy in scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. Nothing in the scripture came from the person, the man's own initiative or understanding. No, 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 no. Here's what Peter says. Those prophets, people, people that have written the scripture were what? Moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. Peter said the words of scripture are initiated and created and started by God himself. And it says this, that the writers of the scripture were moved by the Holy Spirit. In Greek, this idea is the wind filling a sail. Like the writers of scripture were boats with sails and the Holy Spirit blew into their sails and directed and guided them on what to write and what to say. And so when you read the scripture, it was written down by men. But Peter says, make no mistake, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke and wrote from God. It was God who did this. And so the authority of the Bible, the writers say, comes from itself. It's the word of God. And parents, you understand this, right? Because when you tell your kids to do something and they say, why? You say this, because I 
said so. That's right. The authority and the power for what you're saying comes from yourself because you have the power and the ability to follow through on what you're saying. You do this, this is what's going to happen. You don't do this, here's what's going to happen. Why? Because I said so. So then they do or don't do what you told them to do or not do. And then what you said would happen happens because you have the authority and the power to make it happen. The authority derives from yourself. And his creator, God, the authority from his word comes from itself. He is God and he has the power and the authority to follow through on what he has said. And so the authority of scripture comes from itself. Number one, it claims to have been written by God. As God spoke and moved men to write down these words. Okay, so that's that's number one. Number two. The authority comes from its supernatural nature. The authority of the Bible comes from its supernatural nature. If this book has been written and superintended by God, you would expect there to be some divine characteristics, some divine properties, some divine or supernatural aspects and characteristics to this book. And there are, and we're going to point out two of those tonight. The first one is this, there is a supernatural consistency. There's a supernatural consistency in the scripture. Many theologians have come together and put this quote together about how the Bible was written to show its supernatural consistency. Watch this, the Bible was written over a period of roughly 2000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages, shepherds, kings, scholars, fishermen, prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, and a priest, all penned portions of the scripture. They had different immediate purposes for writing, whether that be recording history, giving spiritual and moral instruction, pronouncing judgment, They composed their works from palaces, prisons, the wilderness, and places of exile while writing history, law, prophet, poetry, prophecy, and proverbs. In the process, they laid bare their personal emotions, expressing anger, frustration, joy, and love. Yet, despite this marvelous array of topics and goals, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. It never contradicts itself or its common theme. God's God's redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. Isn't that not amazing? To think about all the different places and time periods and languages and continents that these writers wrote from, yet there is one overarching story, God's redemption of mankind through Jesus. That is a supernatural consistency. Did you know in the Bible, there are over 63,000 cross references back and forth to other portions of scripture. Here's what it looks like on an arc diagram. That's the Bible. This isn't possible with man. 
to have all of this cross-referencing, yet there be one unfolding story of God's redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. Over 63,000 cross-references, the arc diagram pointing to God. God is the author of scripture. And so there is a supernatural consistency to it. Secondly, there is a supernatural prophecy in it. There is supernatural prophecy in the scripture. And I'm just going to give you a few of those. First of all, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about Babylon conquering Judah and many of the details for it a hundred years before it happened. In 700 BC, Isaiah prophesied that Babylon would conquer Judah. He said this in Isaiah chapter 39 and Isaiah's prediction came true a hundred years later. Isaiah also predicted that Babylon would be conquered by another nation in Isaiah 21. This prophecy was fulfilled in 539 BC. Then Isaiah had an even more amazing prediction. The prophet identified by name the king who would allow Judah to rebuild Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 44, Cyrus, king of Persia, who did conquer Babylon and decreed that the Israelites could return to their homeland. Isaiah predicted all of this 150 years before it happened. About Jesus, there are at least 61 prophecies concerning the Messiah that were fulfilled by Jesus. Now, a skeptic could argue, well, Jesus knew those prophecies, then he could maneuver events in order to fulfill those prophecies. Yet many of the prophecies about the Messiah were outside of Jesus' control. The place of his birth, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. The time of his birth, Daniel chapter 9. The manner of his birth, Isaiah chapter 7. The manner of his death, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. The burial in a rich man's tomb in Isaiah 53. The chances of one man fulfilling just eight of the specific prophecies in the Old Testament is one in 1,017. Yet he fulfilled over 61. In Daniel chapter nine, Daniel prophesied about when the Messiah would come. And all scholars agree that Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter nine down to the year. Many Jewish scholars believe that Daniel, when they worked the math, actually prophesied the announcement of the Messiah when Jesus came in riding on the donkey down to the exact day. That's supernatural prophecy. Man can't do that. Only God could predict the future. And in the scripture, we have hundreds of prophecies that have already come true. Whether it was in the New Testament, in the life of Jesus, or in the Old Testament, the prophecies that were fulfilled as those prophets spoke hundreds of years in advance. So the authority from the Bible comes from its supernatural nature. Third, the authority of the Bible comes from Jesus. The authority of the Bible comes from Jesus. You see, we believe that Jesus was the son of God and he proved it by rising from the grave. And the Bible says that Jesus appeared to many people like Peter who denied him, like Paul 
who was a skeptic and a church persecutor, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Son of God. In fact, he was putting Christians in jail that believed that and taught that. People like James, the the brother of Jesus, and the Gospels say that James and his brothers thought Jesus was literally going out of his mind. And you would too if your brother told you he was the Son of God. Yet all of these people and more, 1 Corinthians 15 says that he appeared at one time to over 500 people at one time. All of these people and more believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Not that someone told them, not that they heard a story about this guy that rose from the grave. No, they eyewitnessed and saw him. They said, they claimed, we've touched him. We've talked with him. We've ate with him. We've heard him speak. We have seen him with our eyes and touched him with our hands. He is alive. And they went to their graves, dying martyrs, death, horrible death, saying they saw Jesus risen from the grave. No one dies for something they know to be a lie. Not that many people. Liars make bad martyrs. And there's a lot of people who went to their graves saying they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so we believe Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he was the son of God. And so since we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh and that Jesus speaks for God and things that Jesus approved of, God approves of, and things that Jesus spoke against, God is against because he is God. He left us no room to question. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the son of God. He said, me and the father, we are one. That was bad English. Sorry. He said, the father and I, the father and I are one. He left us no room to doubt. And here's what Jesus said about the scriptures that we have today. You said, Jesus talked about the the Bible. Well, Jesus quoted from every section of the old Testament. Did you know that Jesus quoted from the law, the the Psalms, the Proverbs, the major and the minor prophets? He quoted from almost every portion of the Old Testament, giving authority, God giving authority, saying, this is my word. Jesus quoted from nearly every portion of the Old Testament. Then watch this. In John chapter 14 and 16, Jesus said that his disciples, specifically his disciples, would be given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, he said, would teach them all things and guide them in all truth and would remind them of what he said. Now that is generally true for you and I as well. That The Holy Spirit comes into us, God's presence. When we give our lives to Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit leads us and guides us into truth. His Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. His Holy Spirit reminds us of what's been said in the scriptures. That is generally true for you and I, but it is specifically true for the disciples in a way that it's not true for you and I. It's generally true for all of us, including the disciples, but it's especially true for the disciples in a way that it's not necessarily true for you and I. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus told the disciples in John 14 and 16 that specifically they would be given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would teach them 
all things and guide them in all truth and would remind them of what he said so much so that when Peter and Paul and others would begin to refer to each other's writings in the New Testament, they would refer to them as scripture. They believed that as they wrote, according to what Jesus had told them, that they were writing Scripture. And so Paul will reference some of Peter's writings and he will refer to them as scripture. Peter will reference some of Paul's writings and refer to them as scripture. They both will refer to some of the gospel accounts that were already being circulated and they will refer to them as scripture. The apostles, and we'll get more into this next week, but the apostles were given specific authority and Paul along with them, because he had seen Jesus, to write the words of scripture in a way that no one else has been given the same kind of authority. It's why John, at the end of Revelation, in his revelation from Jesus seeing heaven, hears that nothing shall be taken away from these words and nothing shall be added to these words. They were giving a unique authority by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to write scripture. And so we have Jesus, God in the flesh, affirming the authority of the Old Testament and giving the authority to his followers, his apostles for the writing of the New Testament. And so here's my challenge for you tonight is to make this your heart in your prayer. The author, who are we talking about? The author of the scripture. All scripture has been inspired by God. So the author, all caps author, not lowercase author. The author is my authority. He's my authority for faith, for my beliefs, for my life, for practice. The author is my authority. There is no higher authority than God and there is no higher authority than his word because it is God's word. And so that's my challenge for you is to make the author your authority because of what we've talked about and and, and so much more. Because Jesus rose from the grave and gave authority to this. We believe this is God's word. And so my challenge for you is to make the author your authority for everything. For what's right, what's wrong, how you should live your life, what you should do in any situation. The author, God, is your authority. Which means you are not your authority. It means culture is not your authority. And I say that because you, me, we're we're bad authorities. This culture is a bad authority. It's not an authority for anything. You and I change our minds each and every day. Culture changes what is right and wrong literally now on day by day basis. That's a terrible standard for an authority for your life. 
yourself, what culture says, what's on TV, movies, music, books. That's a terrible authority. In fact, the Bible tells us so. Paul said this in Romans chapter one. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to watch this, think up foolish ideas for themselves. They became their own authority. And so they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, watch what happens. Their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise. We know what's true. We know what's right and wrong. It's what's right and wrong in our eyes. It's what feels good. It's what makes sense. That's what's right and wrong. They came up with foolish ideas. They claimed to be wise, but instead they became utter fools. They traded the truth of God for a lie. So they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. So the Bible says you and I can't trust our own ideas, our own thoughts about who God is and what he's like and what he wants. We, we can't trust ourselves. All we do is come up with foolish ideas about who God is and, and what he's like. So we can't trust our mind. We can't trust our thoughts. Jeremiah says this, watch this. Jeremiah 17, the prophet Jeremiah, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So in other words, you can't trust your feelings. You can't trust how you feel about things. You can't trust your own ideas. You can't trust your own feelings which means we can't trust culture's ideas and culture's feelings about things. No, 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 those, that's not our authority. Our authority is God's word. When we trust ourselves or when we trust culture and those become our authority, Jesus says, you're basing your life, you're building the foundation of your life on sand. And when the storm comes, you will come crashing down and you will look like an utter fool. When the authority of your life is yourself or is what this culture teaches, Jesus said, you're building your life on sand. But if you will listen to my words and obey my word, Jesus said, it's like building your house on the rock. It's a firm and solid foundation. And when the storms of life come, it will stand the test of time. When you build the foundation of your life on me and my words, when you do things my way, you'll experience blessing. When you trade my truth for a lie, you experience the curse and it all comes crashing down. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, we have to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Culture says, do whatever feels good. Whatever nat nature says, do it. Whatever your whims say, do it. Whatever you want to do, it makes you feel good and you think seems right. Do that. Jesus says, no, don't do that. Build your life on my word. Paul says, no, 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 don't do that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind to where you begin to think differently. You begin to think like God. And when you begin to think like God thinks, you'll experience the blessing that God wants you to experience in this life. And so that will often mean agreeing with God 
and disagreeing with culture. That's what it often means. So you're not a good authority. Culture's not a good authority. You know who else isn't a good authority? Christian leaders. You're like, I thought, aren't, aren't you a pastor? Yep. But Christian leaders are not your authority. I am not your authority. There is no book on the face of this planet that is your authority. And getting ready for this series, I had a friend message me and said, hey, you got to read this book. And I get that a lot. And I know what people mean. I, I know what people mean. This book's been impactful to me, like you need to read it. But really in reality, I don't. I don't need it. I don't have to read that book. Because Christian authors aren't my authority. Christian leaders are not my authority. The only thing I've got to read is God's word. Now, sometimes Christian leaders can help us and they can point us in the right direction. But you know what Acts 17 says about the Christians at Berea? It says the Bereans were more noble than any other followers of Jesus because they searched the scriptures day after day to see if what Paul said was true. Paul, if ever there was a Christian leader to trust and to follow and to believe is your authority, surely it would have been Paul. But even the Bereans were searching the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Listen, that should be me and you. Every word I say, every word you read in another book, you should be searching the scripture and seeing: is this really true? Is this really right? Does the spirit inside of me bear witness to this and agree with this? Talking with other Christians, does this seem right? I'm thinking this, I'm believing this. This is what the Bible seems to be saying to me because you've received the Holy Spirit. You see, we believe in the priesthood of the believer, which means every single one of you as followers of Jesus have the Holy Spirit, which means God will speak to you through his word. You actually don't have to have me. You don't have to have that book. God wants to speak to you through his word. And so my words are authoritative in as much as they agree with scripture. The words of any Christian author, your favorite author, your favorite pastor, they are only true in as much as they agree with scripture. When my words disagree with scripture, I'm wrong. When that author's words disagrees with scripture, that person's wrong. The Bible, the author, all caps author, is my authority and no one else. And so Psalm chapter one tells us this. Delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on it day and night. And people who do that, they're like trees that are planted along the riverbank. They bear fruit each season. Their, lives, their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they you wanna prosper, you wanna succeed, you wanna have joy and blessing in your life, you wanna be like a tree that's planted along a riverbank that has life and gives life to other people, then meditate on God's word day and night. Joshua, God told Joshua about the same thing in Joshua chapter one, he said this, study this book of instruction continually, meditate on it day and night, so you will be sure to obey everything written in it, only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. And listen, over 2000 years of church history, followers of Jesus have read this book and their lives have been changed forever. Millions and millions of people who have read this book, their lives have been changed because when they read it, they meet the author, the author of life. And God begins to speak to them and their life begins to change. 
That's what happened in my life. Junior in high school, I'd grown to, I'd gone to church. I'd listened to pastors. But my life began to change when I began to read this book in a way it never had before. It changed my life because when you read this book, you meet the author of life. When you read this book, you begin to learn about Jesus. Jesus said, this book, Old and New Testament, Jesus said, it talks about me. It points to me. And when you get to know me, you experience true life. And so that's my final point. The authority from scripture, the authority of scripture comes from changed lives. Millions and millions of changed lives throughout church history of people's lives who've been drastically changed as they've read this book because they meet a man named Jesus. See, there's a lot in this Bible, 66 books, more than 40 authors, but there's one overarching message. God's redemption of mankind through Jesus. You see, man says, culture says, well, if there is a God, I, I better be good enough to go to heaven. I've got to try harder. I've got to do better. And that's what every religion on the face of this planet says, because it's come from man. It's come from culture. I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. I've got to do this more times. I've got to do this this many times a day. I've got to do this once a week. I've got to do better and try harder and do less bad things. And maybe God will let me into heaven. That's religion. That's not what's in this book. This book tells us about a man named Jesus who came to save us from our sin. It tells us that salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done. In other words, good people don't go to heaven. This book tells us that we're saved by God's grace alone because we can never earn it through faith alone, not by works, through Christ alone and his death on the cross to save us from our sin. That's the opposite of what man and culture comes up with. It's a totally different kind of relationship. And so when you read this book, you learn about a man named Jesus who came and died on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and, and my sin. And that's the only reason why God should ever let you into heaven. See, if I were to ask you, why, why should God let you into his heaven? Because it belongs to him. You don't get to decide how to get in, he does. And the only answer to why God should let you into heaven is that he shouldn't. He shouldn't let you into heaven. He shouldn't let me into heaven because we've sinned. We've fallen short of his standard to go to heaven. The only reason God lets us into heaven is because he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sin. And so 2 Corinthians 5 says this. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin, took on sin for you and me so that those of us that are in Christ would become the righteousness of God. We would become right with God. And some of you, you've never made that decision. You've been trying to be good enough tonight. You need to know the Bible teaches that you can never be good enough, but there was one who was good enough and his name is Jesus. And if you give your life to him, then he takes your sin and he gives you his righteous life. You need to give your life to him tonight and be saved from your sin.
Let's stand. Our team's going to lead us in a time of, of worship. And as they do, in Judges chapter 21, at the end of this book, it said that Israel continued to do what was right in their own eyes. And so what happened next is they got a king who began to tell them what was right or wrong and began to direct the affairs of their life. You see, when you have no king, you do what's right in your eyes. But when you have a king, you do what's right in his eyes. In those days, Israel did whatever seemed right to them in their own eyes because they had no king. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we have a king. His name is Jesus. And so we don't do what's right in our own eyes. We do what's right in his eyes. And the creed of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus is thus saith the Lord. Whatever he says is true. Whatever he says is right. Whatever he says, I believe. Whatever he says, I'm going to believe. Thus saith the Lord. Whatever he says, the Bible is God's word. And so when I have a king, I do what's right in his eyes. God, I pray that tonight, through the power of your Holy Spirit, the author of the scripture would become our authority. And so the scripture will become our authority for faith, life, and practice. And all that we do, God, I pray that we our lives would line up with your word. And when it doesn't, you would correct us and your spirit would break our hearts over that sin. And it would begin to change us and give us new desires as you said you would do. New desires, God, and a fresh faith. God, would you do that now? Would your Holy Spirit come and wash out any of the, the sin and the lies that we believe, God, and it would begin to replace it with truth from your word. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. May it be a lamp to our feet and a light into our path.